Good morning, church. It's certainly a, a pleasure to be back um, worshipping with you today, even if it is um, remotely. Um, I guess one of the, the, the few good things to have come from, from COVID is, uh, and the various lockdowns is the ability to, to spend time to, together with um, people and, and churches all, all, over, all over the globe. Um, before I begin, um, I guess for those of you whose camera I can see, I, I take it you can hear me okay? Um, maybe give me a nod if it's working grand. Um, I have to wear this, this headphone, otherwise you, you hear the interference from the, the cooling fan on my laptop. If for any reason it starts to drop out, please just wave or something and I'll, uh, I'll try and project my, my voice a little, a little more. It is early here in the UK, so I am um, conscious that I have uh, three sleeping children upstairs, which uh, I would rather remain the case. Um, for those of you who don't know me, uh, as Eric has said, my name is, is Derek and my, my family and I, we lived out in Johor from uh, 2016 through to the end of 2018. And we were fortunate enough to, to spend time um, at IBCBI and uh, come to know um, the great community of believers that was, was there. Um, and we've been fortunate to, to stay in touch from a distance. And uh, it's really nice this morning to see um, so, so many old friends on here as, as well as plenty of new faces. And um, one of the greatest encouragements for me is the, is the church WhatsApp group. And it's, uh, it's really good to see so many uh, new people's names being, being added to it uh, so frequently. Um, so it's good to see uh, brothers and sisters, both old and new this morning. Um, today I'm going to be picking up where Eric finished off last week in some of these final chapters uh, in Genesis and this great concluding narrative that details the lives of Jacob, Joseph and their families. And the chapters that we're going to be covering today, as you can see on your screen, is Genesis 47 and 48. Um, I sent out a reminder at the, the beginning of the week, I hope that you've had um, time to read through them in detail, as I'm not going to read them out in full this morning. And rather, I'm just going to try just now to give a, a brief synopsis by way of introduction to this passage of Scripture. Um, if you were to begin at chapter 47, it, it starts with the conclusion, if you like, of Jacob and his family's journey into the province of Goshen in the lands of the Egyptians. In chapter 46, we we learned that all of Jacob's family had left Canaan following God's direction that had been given to them through the dreams that Jacob had had. And after reuniting with Joseph at the end of that chapter, we then pick up the narrative in this early part of chapter 47, which details Joseph going to inform Pharaoh of his family's arrival in the lands. And following Pharaoh's permission to settle, Jacob is then brought before him and offers up a blessing to him. The story then moves on and we reach verse 13 where we learn that a famine has come across all of the land. And from here through to verse 27, we read of Joseph administering the resources of the land, first for money, then for livestock, and finally for land itself. And all of the land and the Egyptian people on it become eventually the possessions of Pharaoh. 
Chapter 47 then closes with Jacob, who's now predominantly referred to as Israel, beginning to get his affairs in order as he approaches the end of his life. And as part of that, as we move into chapter 47, it details how Jacob engages in the Jewish custom of passing on the blessing. To this end, he summons Joseph and Joseph's children, his grandchildren, Ephraim and Manasseh, to receive their blessing. And when presented before him, Jacob lays his hand firstly on the younger son to receive the greatest blessing. Thinking this is this is somewhat accidental due to Jacob's poor sight at old age, Joseph moves to correct his father. His father's insistence saying that whilst the older son Manasseh will will father a great people, Ephraim will yet be greater, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. And the chapter then goes on to conclude with Jacob proclaiming that God will be with Joseph and will bring him back to the land of his fathers. So I hope I've articulated in those two minutes something that would have taken me 10 minutes or so to read. Um, But it would be very helpful if you just keep your your Bible open. I'm going to try and um, have the various bits of of scripture coming up on the screen, um, but it would be be helpful if you have your your Bible with you. Um, Before we we begin uh, looking at the text, I wonder if we could just perhaps... um, Pray again and ask for for God's blessing um, on our next uh, half hour or so. Heavenly Father, it's uh, a pleasure and uh, an honour to be able to uh, meet with with brothers and sisters over in Johor and in the States this morning. Lord, we just give you thanks for this, um, this gift of technology that enables all this to be possible. Um, the Lord, we also recognize that our community and our fellowship is, is founded firstly in you, and we give you thanks for that. And Lord, we just pray that as we come round your word this morning, these, these ancient words detailing um, some of the great heroes of the faith, Lord, we pray that you would speak into our lives, that you would inform our minds, and that you would challenge our hearts. Lord, we pray that we would feel convicted of your word this morning. Lord, that we would try and take some practical application from this text, Lord, and that we would apply it to our own lives. Lord, we pray that you would use your word to to shape us and to fashion us, to, to make us grow in the likeness of your son, Jesus. Lord, we just ask for your, your blessing to be upon us, for your goodness to be upon us, and Lord, we just pray that you would speak to us this morning in your precious Son's name. Amen. When you read these these chapters this, this past week, perhaps um, for the first time or perhaps for the umpteenth time, I wonder what thoughts first populated your mind. My early considerations were drawn toward the theme of God's plan and providence that we see throughout the text. It is so evident and obvious. You see it at every twist and turn. We know that from the the beginning of chapter 46, that it is God who has given Jacob the impetus to travel to Egypt. That it was God who had caused the family to receive favor in the sight of Pharaoh in chapter 47. That it was God who had installed 
Joseph as a skillful administrator to deal with the famine. That it was God's plan for the people to be fruitful and to multiply. That it was God's plan for Jacob to pass on the greatest blessing to Ephraim rather than Manasseh. And that it was God whose plan for eternal restoration would be predicted at the, the tail end of the chapter 48, where it alludes to this return to the promised land. God orchestrating, planning, and extending sovereignty over the hand of his people. That is what we see in these chapters. And so as we come to consider these three things, I'd like us to try and do under three headings as we examine ourselves in light of God's plan for our lives. The first heading is, are we living in the moment? The second heading, are we living in the knowledge? And the third heading is, are we living in the promise? Firstly then, living in the moment. Shortly after Jacob's arrival in the land of Egypt, we have two contrasting tales that run in parallel eliciting two totally different responses and two totally different outcomes. We have the tale of the Egyptians who sacrifice long-term sustainability for short-term gains. And on the other hand, we have the tale of the settling Israelites who exercise control and experience long-term multiplication. What we read of is the difference between the godless and the godly. Godless people live only for the moment. They live for immediate gratification. They have no consideration or thought for tomorrow. Today, the present time we live in is all that matters for them. Their motto for life is, is echoed in the warning words of, of Luke from chapter 12, take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. You see, the Egyptians, like most ancient people, had a cyclical view of history. Life to them was nothing more than an endless cycle, unending in its repetition. History to them did not have a beginning, nor does it have an end. Therefore, there is no real purpose or meaning to life. Their mindset of this is evident in our, in our study of chapter 47. It is clear that the Egyptian people did not put anything aside for the seven years of famine, even though it was announced that there was going to be a famine. They saved nothing. They consumed everything. They put nothing aside. They lived only for the present. Rather than to do what was right, i.e. To, to, to work and to scrimp and to save, rather they would sell themselves into slavery. Verse 19 of chapter 47 says, why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food, and we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh, and give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. And there's a lesson for us in that. We need to be careful as people that we do not adopt the mindset that thinks only about the here and now. We need to be careful that we do not think more about the pleasures of the body and the temporal gains that we can get from it than we do about the eternal consequences of our actions. We need to be careful that we do not focus more on our jobs, our incomes, our business of the day. 
can we do on this spiritual legacy that we would leave our children or those around us? We need to be careful that the things of the flesh do not become more important to us than the things of the soul. We need to take a lesson from the fate of the Egyptians. And by contrast, our passage details one of Jacob's deathbed's requests. Unlike the Egyptians, Jacob is thinking much more about important things than the here and now. He is thinking about legacy. Chapter 47, verses 29 and 30 say this, And when the time drew near that Israel, that's Jacob, must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, if now I have found favour in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. Jacob knew something that the Egyptians did not. Jacob knew that history as a goal and a purpose. Jacob knew that history is not an endless cycle of the same things happening. Jacob knew that God is in charge. Jacob knew that God has commanded his grandfather Abraham to leave his country, his people, and his father's household, and to go to a land that God would show him. Jacob knew that it was this land, not Egypt, that was Israel's promised land. And therefore, Jacob knew he belonged not in Egypt, but in Canaan. And the application for us here is to be like a Jacob, to believe that our eternal and almighty God is in control and that he is working things out according to his plan. The book of Hebrews tells us that Jacob was a man who lived and died by faith. He did not receive the things he promised. He only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. He admitted he was an alien and stranger on earth. He was longing for a better country, for a heavenly one. Hebrews chapter 11, when it is describing Jacob, his grandfather Abraham, and his descendants, it says this in verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but have been seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on this earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared for them a city. So friends, brothers and sisters, are we living for the moment? Are we living through this uncertainty that this pandemic has brought us with the temporal concerns about how we will live, about how we will make money and how we will eat? This is a time not unlike the great famine of Egypt where everything has been turned on its head. Do we respond to this crisis like the Egyptians with our concerns about the here and now? Or will we respond to this crisis in a manner like Jacob and his family? Will our trust and our hope and our longings be on the spiritual nurturing of our souls? 
Will our actions be for the aid and for the betterment of our neighbours and for those less fortunate? Will we show love, mercy and grace because we have been granted all these things immeasurably more? Will our eyes be towards the hills, as the psalmist says, as we look for our strength? Or will we find our strength, our courage, our sustenance in the one who has offered us a certain hope and future in the eternal promised land? Are we living for the moment or are we living for eternity? Living for the moment, now living for the knowledge. Joseph was a man doing God's will in Egypt. And he did such a good job of this that the people loved him, even though they lost their money, their animals, their goods, their property, even though they actually ended up in bondage to Pharaoh. Verse 20 of 47 says, So Joseph bought all of the land for Pharaoh, for all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. In Joseph's day, slaves were like modern day employees and so the people saw Joseph as their savior, not as a harsh slave driver, you, that's Joseph, have saved our lives, they go on to exclaim in verse 25. Out of divine wisdom, Joseph had greatly enriched the king without oppressing the people by tyranny. That's how Egyptians looked at this matter. But we should be really bothered by that statement of you, Joseph, have saved our lives. For the Egyptians are crediting to Joseph what should have actually been credited to God. They are exchanging Pharaoh for the living God. They are putting Pharaoh in God's place. You have saved our lives. Don't we see the same thing today? People who put their trust in government, world leaders, their bosses, or even celebrities when they should be trusting in God. People who are looking at people just like ourselves. Fickle, broken powerless, weak, susceptible to chasing temporal things, prone to making mistakes, prone to wandering from the fold of God. An old hymn that always resonates with me as I, I often think as it so often describes my, my own vulnerability says this, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. It then counters with this, take my heart, O take and seal it, with your spirit from above, rescued me from sin and danger, purchased by the Saviour's blood. May I walk on earth a stranger, as a son and heir of God. The Egyptians were not living in knowledge. Their thought and their faith and their hope was centered on Pharaoh and on the administrative actions of Joseph. They had missed the point of the providence of God. The Lord had given to them a skillful administrator in Joseph, who had advised them to store up in the years of plenty to provide for the years of famine, yet they did not. Jacob, on the other hand, 
had followed the Lord's commandment and had sojourned to Egypt so that he would be under the administrative hand of his son. And indeed, him and his family prospered as a result. By this point in the text, he's 147 years old, having come to Egypt initially at the ripe old age of 130. So for 17 years, he has been under the care of Joseph at the graceful and merciful design of God. It's interesting that that Joseph, when he left his father's house, when he was sold into slavery, that Jacob had cared for Joseph for 17 of those years. So Jacob had cared for Joseph for 17 years of his most vulnerable years and now God's providence had dictated that Joseph would care for Jacob in 17 of his most vulnerable years. Coincidence or God incidence? You will find, will you not, so many more examples of God's keeping and sustaining of you than you live in the knowledge of knowing him. You see, Jesus tells us to trust in God. Matthew's Gospel in chapter 6 records Jesus as encouraging us to trust rather than to be anxious. So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all of these things. You've changed that word with the Egyptians. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. The psalm writer also has wisdom on this subject. Perhaps he was thinking about Joseph and the Pharaoh and the Egyptians when he penned this. Verse 3. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob whose help, hope, is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watch over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. What a wonderful psalm to remind us to live in the knowledge. Living in the knowledge brings blessing. It upholds us when we are weak and when we are lonely. It sustains us when we are hungry and thirsty. It gives freedom to us when we feel oppressed. It lifts up our weary heads when they hang in anguish and despair. It brings certainty. It brings hope. It brings promise. And it brings redemption. And as people who live with that knowledge, who have come to know the saving grace of Jesus, It is incumbent upon us to share that knowledge, to promote the gospel, to tell people of Jesus' love for them and to point them towards the only one who is able to grant them eternal life. 
I was watching um, a TV interview the other night on the news. I don't know if this is just a, a British thing, it could well be. Um, but during the lockdown, there's been a huge uplift in the number of people watching quiz shows on the TV or participating in, in quizzes on platforms like this with Zoom or on the internet. And a quiz, uh, for those who don't know, is just a test of a person's general knowledge. And the lady who was being interviewed as part of this uh, part of this newsreel remarked that she thought that the uplift in quizzes was because quizzes presented questions to topics that had certain answers. In other words, people all over the UK, in her eyes, were enjoying the theme of certainty that people experienced when doing quizzes because they had absolute answers during this time of great uncertainty. Knowledge, she was saying, was creating hope. How much more hope is there then when you live in the knowledge that the king of the universe has reconciled himself to you through what he has done through his son on the cross? We have not living in the moment, we have living in the knowledge and now living in the promise. All through the Old Testament is, is woven a story that points to the coming of the Messiah, to the coming of Jesus, the one who would restore the chasm that had been created between man and God during the fall. God's providential plan was for man to be reconciled with him through faith in his son, whom he would send to bear the sins of all. And access to the Father, to eternity with him, will be granted for all who call on his name, all who know him as their saviour. God offers us this adoption to, to anyone should they choose to believe in him, and he promises to make us heirs to that kingdom. Titus 3 and verses 4 to 7 tell us this. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Saviour, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs to the hope of eternal life. In chapter 48, we see pointers to God's rescue plan and of his desire to adopt foreigners like ourselves into his eternal kingdom. We start to see what it is like to be living in the promises of God. The early verses in this chapter detail how Joseph comes to his father so that his sons may be blessed. And if you were to look closely at verse 5 from that chapter, you would see that Jacob, Jacob sorry, adopts both of Joseph's sons into his family. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. Even though they were born in Egypt and even though Joseph, their father, was separated from their family, he still adopts them. Whilst this, um, this situation may have 
presented the thought that they would be cut off from the heritage of the Lord. Jacob counters this. He takes them in and he owns them for visible church members. And he does this not out of generosity, but simply because he is living in the promises of God. In verse 3 of 48, it describes how God had blessed Jacob and promised to make him fruitful, to multiply his family and to give the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession to his offspring. And in faith, Jacob is now taking hold of that promise. Hebrews 11 and 21 that's on your screen says this, by faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of his sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. He is living in the promise, and he is reaching out and blessing the sons of Joseph by adopting them. But not only does he adopt them, but he also points them in the direction to live out the promise. Look at verse 16 as he delivers that blessing. About halfway through the recital, he says, Bless the boys, and in them let my name be carried on, and the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. He is saying to them, it is better to be known as a sojourner, lowly and humble, to take Jacob's name and be in the company of God, rather than to see Egypt as their home and be associated with the wealth and riches that would have been bestowed on their father Joseph. Look not to worldly things, but rather rest on the promises of God and live them out, knowing that there is a far greater blessing in that. Living in the promise is not always easy. Sometimes it's hard, isn't it, to see God's purposes, and it's hard to understand why some things come to pass. Joseph in our text becomes frustrated when Jacob crosses his hands to bless Ephraim the younger first over Manasseh. But Jacob was resolute, and he let Joseph know that he did this not by mistake, nor in humour, nor from a, a partial affection to one more than the other, but from a spirit of prophecy and in compliance with divine counsel. Manasseh should be great, but truly Ephraim shall be greater. And this would come to pass. If you were to read further on into the book of Numbers, you would come to see that when the tribes were mustered in the wilderness, that Ephraim's tribe was more numerous than Manasseh, and that Ephraim's tribe would be named first. Joshua was a son of that tribe, and so was Jeroboam. The tribe of Manasseh, on the other hand, was divided. One half on one side of the Jordan and the other half on the other side, which made it less powerful and considerable. And it is the foresight of this that Jacob crosses his hands, for the Lord had planned it as part of his eternal rescue story. And there is a lesson for us in that. Because it's easy to fall into the trap of being displeased with God when you become frustrated with a situation. When something doesn't work out as you had planned or as you had hoped. It's hard and we can become upset and feel maybe bitter or just feel great disappointment. But God assures us that if we are to confess our sins, 
and hold fast to Jesus as our rock and as our redeemer and as our riches, then God's purpose for disappointment will be a good purpose. It will be worth everything that we must endure. And we know this is true because it says it so in Romans 8 and 28. And we know that for those who call upon, and we know that for those who love the Lord, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, I'm not saying that we should oversimplify these words, for it certainly does not mean, don't let life get you down. God is going to make everything better for your time here and there. There's no biblical basis for that. In fact, First Peter in chapter 4 and verse 12 would tell us that life is not always meant to be happy or rich and full. Sometimes we're meant to suffer. But it's in the midst of that suffering that God's working and purposes are most often deployed. We trust that God is working even through trials and even through our sufferings to bring about his will. And it's in that promise that we must rest. God often gives to those that are the least likely. He chooses the weak things of the world. He raises the poor out of the dust. Grace observes not the order of nature, nor does God prefer those whom we think the fittest to be preferred, but he does as it pleases him. It's interesting to note how often God, by the distinguishing favours of his covenant, advanced the younger above the elder. Abel above Cain, Shem above Japheth, Isaac before Ishmael, Jacob above Esau, Judah and Joseph were preferred before Reuben, Moses, Moses sorry, before his brother Aaron, David the youngest, yet the chosen, Solomon before his elder brethren. God tied the Jews to observe the birthright, but he never tied himself to observe it. God has a plan and a purpose for all, for the high and the low, for the mighty and the meek, for the weak and for the strong, for the old and for the young, for the able and for the less able, for the Jew and for the Gentile, for the old believer and for the new convert. Grace is freely given to all who call on his name. Live not for the moment. Live in the saving knowledge of Christ and believe in his eternal promise for it is good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that we can think upon your promise and your, your plan for our lives, knowing that it is a plan that is not free from, from hardship or suffering, but it is a plan that brings about a good ending. Lord, we know that you're a God who is, who is faithful to his people, who loves his people, who, who cares for his people. And Lord, we pray that these, these words um, would speak into our hearts, Lord, that as the world moves around us and as this pandemic unfolds and as the 
uncertainty and frustration and doubts and anguish and, and despair creep into our hearts and to our minds, Lord, that we would be reminded to look to you. Father, to know that these things around us are temporary, to know that Jesus has come, that he has died on the cross and that he has defeated the grave. Lord, we, may we rest in that knowledge that we have been saved. And Lord, that your, your plan for us is to give us a hope and a future, to bring about eternal life for all those who call upon your name. And so, Father, we pray that we would be able to rest in that mercy and that grace. Lord, that you would renew our strength, that you would restore our courage, and that you would make us good disciples of you. So, Lord, be with us as we head out into another week, Lord. Be in our hearts and in our minds and in the things that we practice and in the things that we say. Lord, may we be a blessing to your name and may we be a blessing to our neighbours. Grant us this, we pray. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.